Zoe Alexa Martin Mako was found murdered on November 16th, 2015, and this is her mother's story. Hi, Olga. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Good morning, Kelly. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Beverly Hills is a city in Los Angeles, California. There are many celebrities, of course, that live here and the famed Rodeo Drive shopping district. Beverly Hills was originally a ranch that grew lima beans, but investors eventually turned it into a town. It is warm in Beverly Hills with its Mediterranean climate. There are many talent agencies and agents for performing arts, and they are quite a thriving industry here. There is a trolley tour around Beverly Hills that takes you through the shopping district, historic landmarks, and celebrity homes, including stories about the rich and famous as you cruise about. You can explore the Virginia Robinson Gardens, a lovely estate that was left by Virginia Robinson, the namesake of the gardens, to Los Angeles County upon her death at 99 years of age. You can also visit the Beverly Hills Farmer's Market every Sunday. Zoe was born to loving mother Olga, who was very excited when she saw her daughter for the first time and was amazed at how precious and beautiful she was. Zoe was Olga's only child and grew up for her first 12 years in Beverly Hills before moving to Denver, Colorado. Zoe was a spirited young girl right from the start with a love for fun and excitement and Zoe always knew how to make people smile and laugh and feel happy. When Zoe was born, what was that day like for you? Well, it was really ecstatic. She was such a beautiful baby. People would stop me and tell me that she was the most beautiful child they'd ever seen and things like that. So it was, I was ecstatic. She was sweet. She was, you know, from the time that she was a little girl. Um, but then things started to change, well, by kindergarten. She was kicked out of kindergarten. So I guess the first five years were good. Until, and then after that, it became a different story. <laughs> and why is that, do you think? What happened in kindergarten? Well, she had been in a Montessori preschool, and they're very liberal, and kids can do what they want and learn the way they want. And I put her in a Catholic school, and that's the antithesis of um, Montessori. So she really had a hard time adjusting. And it just, they said it wasn't working. They didn't give her very long, maybe two weeks or something. So. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like very supportive. <laughs> no, it was entirely not supportive. Um, she pulled one boy off the monkey bars and she spat on another one. So, you know, she um, she just kind of 
she was a pistol. <laughs> that's right. all I can say. Right. Yes, that's a good description. <laughs> so then what did you do after that? Did you enroll her in another school in the local community or? Yes, she went to a magnet public school. And then I had her tested, an IEP, I believe it's called, and to see if there were some learning disabilities or just emotional issues or whatever needed to be addressed because um, there was a lot of chaos in the house. Her father was an active alcoholic, brittle alcoholic. I, I, I just, it was very hard. I was really um, doing the best I could, but very under a great duress, you know, great duress. So. And I'm sure she felt it and she had some fear and everything else, you know. That makes it very challenging for, for her, but also for you. It's hard when, you know, we're in a situation that's challenging and, you know, sometimes we aren't, you know, we just don't know what to do. And then you watch your child struggling and then it's a, it's a very, very big struggle in your heart, you know, as a mom. Oh, and I pulled her away and I, I, you know, I left the area and I think that so many moves were hard on her. It just became like, a, you know, I don't even know what was, would have been better for her. People said to me, well, we moved and, you know, we had four children and, you know, three out of four were fine with moves, major moves across the country. But it wasn't, you know, she didn't appear to be upset and she seemed to be excited about things. But I think that on some level it had to have shaken her core. And what kinds of things did she like to do? Well, her father was uh, a five-time Emmy Award-winning news photographer, local news. And so we had free tickets. Anytime we wanted to the amusement park, you know, Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm, all of these, you know, fabulous um, Six Flags. So one of her favorite things was just mom get tickets and I could get four. And she would just, you know, invite 17 people with the four tickets. um, (laughs) It seemed like, Um, but, you know, we went very often. We knew Disneyland like the back of our hands. We just, um, you know, the Space Mountain and, uh, you know, I think they're changing the the water one. I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway, and um, she just loved going to the park and seeing the little, you know, characters and hugging them. And it was just really sweet. So that was her favorite thing to do. That sounds like fun. And did she like the adventurous rides or the calmer rides? No, the adventurous one, of course. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> yes, a child who's a pistol yeah. is going to like the adventurous one. She played softball at one point, volleyball, but sports were never really her thing. And she started dance when she was three. So she loved to do her dance, uh, you know, lessons and recitals and all of that stuff as well. But I think that the, the Magic Mountain, that's the name of it, um, the one that she loved, you know, going to Disneyland, going to Knott's Berry Farm. And I was kind of like a Mary Poppins, you know, I was having just as much fun as the kids were, you know. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. That's lovely. So you, you have some beautiful memories with your daughter. That's really nice. And but but hard at the same time, because then, you know, it, it, it just everything is it, it's just such a tragedy. While Zoe was being tested at school to identify any particular difficulties, the reports were coming back that there were no learning disabilities. Zoe and Olga moved as their lives at the time were not quite stable. Olga was looking out for her daughter as she always did, and moving seemed to be a good choice. She figured they would be happy, and Zoe would start fresh in a new town. Unfortunately, 
The move did not go as Zoe's mom had hoped. Zoe began to exhibit new challenging behaviors and started to hang around with some undesirable friends. Lead us up to when she was getting to be a teenager and what she was like and what types of things were happening in her life and your life as well at that time. Well, in middle school, we changed. We came to Denver. So we were in Denver just about 10 years when she died. And she became very rebellious. She started jumping out the window. She, I mean, she would swear. It was just an escalation that you couldn't believe. I mean, she had always gone to sleep. When I told her when it was bedtime, she kept a beautifully order, orderly room. That never changed. But when it came to, uh, I guess, the peer pressure or whatever it was, she really began to um, get very defiant. And at one point, she swore at me. We had had a little incident early in the morning. I always drove her to school. I didn't want her to walk to school, especially in the cold, but period, you know. And she and I had a little confrontation and I slapped her by the time we got to school because she had kept swearing at me and, you know, in the car, it was a five, seven, 10 minute drive. And I ended up getting called in for child abuse because when I slapped her, she had five Hot Topic necklaces on and she pushed my hand down because she had never really been struck and she had not been, I have to say, I'm not the best disciplinarian and her father wasn't either, I don't believe so I got in trouble for child abuse, for slapping her. And I really, I felt that it usurped my parental authority because after that, she would say to me, go ahead, tell me I can't do it. I'll call those stupid cops and they're going to believe me because you're the one that's in trouble. I'll tell them anything I want and they're going to believe me because you're the one that's in trouble. So that was her, her visa, you know, to just keep going and doing whatever she wanted. She held that over my head and it was, it was pretty bad because it was a constant struggle after that point. Yes, authorities have to step in when there's child abuse. Absolutely. Kids cannot be abused. Yes. But they also have to... Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Kids who are abused, of course, remove them from the house, you know, end of story, and that's it. Protect them. Yeah, protect them at all costs. At I all mean, costs. I, but... I said to them, if you were going to do something to help me, then God, that would be great because I'm, I'm dealing with such an out-of-control girl. But, you know, you're not. You've, this, this has been, you didn't take her on a ride-along. You didn't do anything to show her that if she continued on the path she was on, she was going to end up in disaster. But, no, they just did it because, I don't know, I think it was, it's a Boulder County school, and I think that there's just so much, I don't even know what the right word is, if it's liberal or if it's whatever. So there's a lot of bureaucracy in, in Boulder. And... And I'm liberal. It's not that I'm, you know, a staunch Republican or anything like that, but there was no offer of help. Olga felt like she was alone trying to figure out why Zoe was acting out and needed advice and direction. Zoe was an only child, and Olga was as well. She didn't really have any relatives, no family to lean on for support or to give her guidance. You know, she was in therapy at the time that I slapped her. And if I was abusing her so much, she would have told her therapist. You know, they didn't do any interviewing of any, not her her father. You know, she had a stepfather, the neighbors, no one. She didn't talk to her records in Los Angeles. Everything was fine. I mean, maybe I yelled at her a lot, but, you know, I didn't know what to do with her. But, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know. 
you know, I, I wasn't a perfect parent by any stretch of the imagination. But once this happened, I called the police after she died. And I said, I hope you're happy because you really contributed to what happened to my child. All Zoe's mom wanted was for her daughter to be happy and healthy, to live life to the fullest and excel in whatever her passions were. Her beautiful daughter, her sweet baby that she loves so much. Olga sought out help from the police desperately. She knew her daughter was out of control. It didn't seem as though she would be getting the resources she so desperately wanted and needed, though. She then later got in trouble for using a stolen credit card on spring break. Yet a te- uh, another schoolmate had found, and she actually was gang raped that week. So in two, two major incidents in a span of, you know, one week of spring break. And I had her hospitalized um, at Children's Hospital in the psych unit. They said, well, she's not suicidal. She's not. I said, but her behavior is really dangerous and she's been hurt and I need help. And, um, and then, of course, she got involved with the system and she had a probation officer. And I have to say, I don't know how many people have experienced this, but juvenile authorities, it's just a joke. I mean, they don't really do anything to that has any consequence. And the kids get the feeling that, oh, this is a joyride. And it is because she ended up in youth um, with juvenile detention at one point. And, and I had to, like, I mean, I sent her away to a team challenge. I She was in a local place in Denver that, you know, helped girls, out-of-control girls, or whatever the right word is. And... Nobody really, uh, when it came to her, the probation officer and the judges, it was like a slap on the wrist. It was almost the judge smiled at me and said, see, it wasn't that bad. I bet you were expecting it to be worse. And he, like, it was a badge of honor for him to be lenient on her. And I think if at the very t- first time she went to court over this theft charge, that she should have had some consequences and maybe she would have taken things more seriously. After all the struggles and troubles, Olga was getting to be at her wit's end. All she wanted was for her daughter to be okay. So she finally went and had a roundtable discussion with everyone she could from the school to try and understand what she could do, where she could turn. She sat with all of these professionals, looking to them for the support she so desperately needed, but nothing happened. Zoe's stepfather eventually became afraid of her and finally stepped back, completely not wanting to be involved in the discipline for fear of his character being questioned by the police if their daughter continued to call them. Seeing the shift of power transferring to Zoe, Olga really was alone. The help they needed never came. The community never stepped up, but instead stepped away, not wanting to be around this young girl who so needed help. Neighbors wanted nothing to do with the family that was struggling. Part of the problem, as is so often the case in society, people don't want to get involved. Zoe continued to spiral deeper and deeper into a hole that monsters she was ill-equipped to deal with 
were hiding in, waiting for her, waiting for this young girl, this child, waiting for innocent babies to be turned into drug addicts and then into escorts to pay for their addiction, praying like vultures, ruining young girls' lives and their chance to grow up. This is the story of Zoe Alexa Martin Mako's murder. This family continues along trying to know what to do, knowing that their daughter was so special and talented and wonderful, full of warmth. If only they could reach her. The irony is that people would say to me, oh, I just phoned your house and your daughter is the most polite. She is so lovely. People loved Zoe. I mean, her friends, of course, but they thought she was just such a doll. And she did have, it's not like she was raised by, in the barn. You know, she had really good manners. She was, she was the best of everything. I mean, every advantage that someone could have, every device, every, and, and the families, uh, there's so many families like, like us, I'm sure. When there's a, when you have a troubled child, you also have the plague because everybody backs off. They don't want to deal with it, especially when it gets to the point where it's drugs. So the community thing is huge. I mean, instead of circling the wagons, people just hide and run and, you know, and say, oh, I don't want to deal with that. So it's, that's a very, very difficult situation as well. Zoe was very loved by her friends and family. She was a little girl from Beverly Hills who thought she could handle herself. She was way too far out of her depth. Once she started down that scary road of drug use, she thought she could handle herself. She wanted to be accepted by the people she was hanging around with. These people aren't looking out for you as they may claim. It is all about the money. You mean nothing to them. You have a dollar figure attached to you. Other than that, they consider you worthless. They come in and ruin teenagers' lives and then their families' lives. Friends, Zoe would have called them. Swamp scum, I say. How did you find out that your daughter had indeed been murdered? Well, she uh, left my, she was in jail for five and a half months. It was her second might have been her third time, but she was in jail. And I was really, I mean, I, I communicated with her. I went to see her, which I never could see her in person, all these different things. Five and a half months, it was the longest time. It was in prison. It was just awaiting, you know, a trial and so on and so forth. So um, she had been out of jail. I had gone to pick her up in Aspen. And, you know, there's a lot of drugs in the Colorado mountains. The cartel moves a lot of drugs. Um, and it's everywhere. So... She basically came home with me. She had actually lost her apartment because of drug use that I had, you know, paid for and I had furnished and I had done everything with her. And she was so excited about her little place. But anyway, so she came to live with us. And the four days, four days later, um, she went out one night. And I mean, you know, she had just been incarcerated, so I couldn't keep her home. But I kept, you know, I'd spend the whole day with her. And I begged her, you know, let's do something tomorrow. But the day before, actually, this is um, 
she went out and she came back and I guess she'd had some altercation with a man who some kind of uh, higher up in the drug business and he confronted her in the car and whatever it was and he broke her phone and she jumped out of a moving car. Her friend was following her and told me this story. It was an older model suburban. Anyway, so my, so that was Friday the 13th, ironically. So Saturday, um, we went to replace her phone. We went out to lunch. I bought her a bunch of clothes because she'd been in jail so long. She needed things. And we, um, and then I have to go out. I have to, she goes, I, I have to do it. And I couldn't determine at my own naivete, whether it was drug related or it was this business, like she'd say, I have to hustle and she'd say all these crazy things. And she told me much more than I ever wanted to know also. But anyway, she had become an escort by this point. She was 21 and she had uh, ended up turning 22 in jail. And then uh, not even six weeks later, she was dead. But they called me. Um, I called uh, the authorities and asked them to do a uh, missing persons report. It was actually my significant other. You know, it wasn't quite tw- you know forty eight hours, whatever time frame they usually want you to wait. I was frantic already because she had not come home, and she used to respond to me in all kinds of situations or ask me to go pick her up in all kinds of you know really terrible instances. Uh, I just didn't hear from her and. We filed a report on Sunday night, and on Monday morning, it was before 7 a.m., or at 7 a.m., a detective called me and asked if he could come over, and he, he um, actually asked me a lot of questions and so on uh, and so forth. It was really so, like, I just wanted to know if, where she was and that they had, you know, maybe they had her in jail again and she would be safe, you know? Yes, that's right. At that point, you're hoping for that because you're getting a terrible feeling about what's happening to your poor daughter. And you're thinking, please let them be telling me she's in jail. But what were you thinking and what happened? Oh, I, I used to wake up and just get on my knees and pray that she was safe almost every night. You know, I oh. I just, and I, I had three, four or five years, I guess, that really I prayed that because of the element that she was associating with, that she would be safe and that no one would harm her. And that she would wake up and, and, you know, they say that the frontal lobe develops by 24. And, you know, she was barely 22. And I thought, well, if we could just get to the next couple of years, so the age of reason or whatever the right expression is, you know, she'll, it'll click because she was so bright. And, um, but anyway, so the detective eventually said that, asked me if she had any distinguishing marks. And then I started to get really, really scared. And he told me that they had found a body in the garbage, uh, in a Denver alley. That is so devastating. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, I lost it. I was completely, you know, and I wanted to go to the alley and people said, you have no business going to the alley. It's not going to, she's not there and it's not going to help your mental state in any way. But anyway, so she had some colors flashed on her body, red, white, and green. And, you know, it, it seemed like a revenge killing and they maybe because she'd been in jail and they were afraid she was going to talk or, you know, there was some question about money that had gone missing from a post office box that was close to our house that she used to take money out of for them or something. What you must have been feeling when the, when the detective came and told you that, I, I can't even imagine that is, and hearing what happened. Oh, my. they don't, 
goodness. And the, pol- the police don't tell you anything. You know, we have to conserve, you know, preserve the integrity of the investigation. And I can't give you any details and so on and so forth. This mother, having found out her daughter had been murdered, wanted to know what was happening. Olga tried so hard to get her daughter's story covered by the media. She wanted to warn other mothers about the dangers lurking in the town, lurking around the corner, about the drugs that would take over their child's life and lead them to a very dark and scary place. She didn't want this happening to someone else's darling daughter. She was terrified for all of the children out there and completely dismayed by the lack of interest in her own adored daughter's murder. Why weren't people listening? Because she was involved in a less than upstanding life in other people's mind's eye? Her love, her life, was murdered. Please, will somebody do something, she was asking. But no one was listening. Finally, finally, she caught someone's ear. She was able to get someone to cover her daughter's death, her daughter's tragic homicide. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend and let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now back to the show. I met with people and tried to find out everything I could, but it was just, and it ended up really affecting me and making me very much, very terrified, really, because when I met with someone, they asked me if um, I would move drugs for them. And I was so panic-stricken. I left my home, my cars, my business, my dog, everything, and just ran, just drove away. I was so afraid. I lived in a very public No kidding. Place. That is so frightening. My goodness. By going to meet this character where I saw that suburban park, you know, so I knew that I was in the right cesspool, but you know, they're not going to tell me. I'm dealing with people that have no integrity, no honor whatsoever. So I, I, I was just kind of, you know, because the officer, the detective said to me, well, it's not exactly the kind of people who help the police and, and contribute. Or um, So I am, I'm having a very hard time. He said, your daughter, for being so young, is connected on so many levels that I am at my desk overnight. So that was one of the first things he told me is that she was connected on so many levels. And I had, been, I had received only a couple months prior a letter from the Department of Justice that the phone lines that she had used to call me were tapped. 
So, I mean, you know, all of these things, it was just, so, it was a lot, you know, really a lot for me. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of never been in trouble except for the slap and, uh, and maybe a speeding ticket, nice. and, you know, and, and, and so, um, you know, I just, uh, I don't know. You knew your daughter was was in in the drug world a little bit, and you knew that she was, you know, be- being an escort. But you thought that's where it was, just sort of, you know, low-level type of things. And then you're hearing from the police after she's been murdered, my goodness, that her phone is being tapped and she's involved in, you know, there could be money missing from a post office box that the cartel's involved with. I mean... This is this is almost too much to bear, I'm sure. It was a lot. I lost everything I owned. I never went back to that loft, that beautiful loft. Um, and I couldn't even get that covered because they don't, you know, her death covered because they say that they don't want to glorify the game. And so they don't give them time on air. And so I had to pull teeth to get her, um, the, you know, and I wanted to put the heat on them. And I think that when I got the coverage, that's when that person contacted me. I mean, but I, I was so terrified and I didn't know what she had gotten herself into that would have gotten her killed. And, you know, I couldn't protect her anymore. Obviously, I couldn't protect her when she was alive. I was a total failure. And, you know, I'd say to her, you, you just, you've got to find different friends. Let's go to a youth group. Let's do this. And she goes, oh, mom, everybody does this. You know, it, her reality was her reality. And she just looked at it like, you know, oh, please get over yourself. I'm not going to change. These are my people. Good for her, though, heading out into the unknown, potentially putting your life at risk to find answers. Olga is in hiding, though, for goodness sake, because someone killed her precious daughter. And this strong and courageous woman wanted answers and decided to go to the source, not fearing for her own safety at the time. Now, she never posts where she is or where she will be for fear of being found. That is such a terrible way to live, but she did it all in the name of answers for her, for her daughter. A lot of the issues with the system this family was involved with for so long is that you have to keep going back. Back for drug tests, back to probation officers, back to court. It is as though you just keep getting brought back into the same groups that you should be trying to avoid. It seems to become your social circle even for those trying to no longer be a part of it. Trying to get out of that world. And there isn't really counseling going on only continuous meetings. What is missing is the actual therapy. Trying to help these young people move on without drugs, find a better life for themselves, and the support and the encouragement. There seems to be none of that. How did you feel the police handled um, communication with you during the whole uh, process? I would say that it was real. I mean, I really liked the detective. I think he was a very decent man. And, you know, 
but I think he was bound because he gave me, we're going to, we're going to, you know, get yourself together because we're going to go to trial and um, I'm working on the accomplices right now, this and that. And then eight months later, it changed completely to, oh, he was a one man show. Um, He operated alone, this and that. I mean, it was just not believable at all because you don't go from, and she had, she was not a small Maybe she was five five, whatever, but you know, she had gained a little bit of weight in jail and you know, there's no way he could have picked up dead weight and moved it by himself. I don't right. believe that that's possible. You know, so all of these things I, I feel that the police well, I think when it gets to be on this level where the Department of Justice is involved and you know, they're not she was small potatoes and I don't think it really mattered. It was more the, the next fish up, I would think, or something. That's all I could think of. Well, I mean, he was very kind to me and the detective, and he always responded to me. And I tried to let him do his job and, and respect that he was under his own, whatever the right word is, uh, limitations or um, barriers or whatever, that he couldn't speak to me about certain things. But I, I just feel that, I mean, they have crisis counseling and they offer some services to people. They do the best they can on that level. But I think that it was bigger than just, you know, her being, there were like 11 murders, I think, the night that Zoe was killed um, oh. in Denver. So, you know, I, who, who's to say? I really didn't explore that that much because at the time I just couldn't handle it. And I, every time somebody dies, I think, well, the mother and the family, you know, because mm-hmm. one person you know, reaches so many people. Olga is vague about the police investigation and how she feels it went because of the goodness she saw in the man in front of her, the detective. She found him to be an upstanding, good-hearted human being. She has no ill words for him, knowing that he did his best. That is good of her, after what she has been through, what her daughter lived through and finally died through. Olga seems to have a sense of calm and peace in her life, and I am happy for her that she does. At Zoe's funeral, Zoe's hands had been so badly burned, along with a large portion of her body, by some form of caustic liquid, an acid, that her hands had to be covered. Her mother is thankful that as the clothing she was wearing in her casket at her funeral covered the rest of her burns, but she still had Zoe's face to look at and see that it wasn't burned as well, allowing her one last look at her precious heavenly angel, Zoe. So what did you do to get through the early days and just through the time since your daughter has been murdered? What have you done? Well, I've always been a very spiritual person. and I've always prayed and I pray for everyone. You know, um, your friends are not going to be there. I, I mean, I had a, my best friend of 30 years. I never talked to her more than three times after Zoe died. And she used to call herself her godmother. It's just either people are afraid because of the nature of what happened or they don't know what to say or whatever the different reasons at different points in the situation. You are just, you're SOL, you know, and when 
you know, the only people that really get you anyway are people in your situation. Because I internalized this initially, and that's why I ran, and that's why I was so, because my friends were disappearing left and right, and I kept thinking, oh my God, people must think that it was my fault, and I felt, I blamed myself for, I don't even know how long. So I think that once you get out of yourself and you speak with other people, it just changes. It's like somebody turned a switch, and that's all I could ever say to someone is, don't do this alone. It's not possible anyway. I'm very grateful to all of the, the people that helped me through my, you know, because it was devastating. I lost everything. I was so, I was, I mean, I was out of my mind. I couldn't, I slept, but, you know, I, I just, well, if you drop a pencil and I jump, you know, I had such PTSD that, you know, hearing other people say, oh, yeah, I, I, I went through that. What would be the advice you'd give to other parents that are going, or family members that are going through such a tragedy like you are? Um, after the, the loss of a child, I, just to make sure you reach out to other or, to organizations and meet other parents who are going through that because, you know, it, it just does, there's no, there's no navigating with, without community. That's my, you know, I can't stress that enough. And that, you, you know, you being of service to other people. I, I hope that this little interview does one, you know, helps one person, you know, that's all I've ever wanted is um, to spare someone else, you know, the pain that I've gone through. If there's any way to do that, to lessen it, you know, to have more support, because I really didn't have any support, you know, from not really very much support at all from people right around me. So I think, and, and also just, I know, for people to become more, uh, responsive, the average person to learn, you know, you can always educate yourself on anything and if you don't know what to say or what to do, you can get some advice on that or, you know, even Google it, I don't know. But um, just to kind of be there for each other makes such a big difference, I think, tremendous difference. And what do you think that a friend could do during the time after someone's child is murdered? Like, I know we, we were speaking before about how your best friend of 30 years is sort of disappeared, but what could a friend, maybe you could give some advice to somebody out there who, you know, their friend is going through the same thing you are. What could they say to them or what could they do that would be helpful? I think listening and just, you know, you don't have answers, but you, you um, unless it's someone who's been through it, in, you know, five years out, 10 years out, and they, they can express that, look, you do get through this one way or another you get through it but if you don't have the experience to learn about it to to try to give just to be there and to not judge because there's so much stigma around addiction and people just go well why didn't she just stop you know well that's not a possibility you know you hear people say oh it's just a junkie let them die who cares well somebody cares I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I mean, I do want them to have compassion for me, but especially for my daughter who lost her life so young. It's not about me, but just the idea of of somebody, it, the ignorance is just, it's, it's astounding. And if we could just sort of take that out, it's, it's mental illness. That's, that's the other thing. You know, addiction is goes hand in hand with mental illness. And everybody's crazy to some extent or another, you know. And some of us are, you know, doing better than others. And I'm not, counting myself as doing so well, but I just think that as a society that we need to become more compassionate and more accepting. 
Olga says her drive for life seems gone on most days, but she is so thankful for her support groups. Without them, she doesn't know where she would be right now. The groups give her strength, and in turn, she is able to be strong for someone else. Being around like-minded people, people that have gone through a murder of a loved one, has given her the support she needed at the beginning to be able to get up each day, and the support she still now needs to live each day knowing that she can survive this tragedy. And now, to be there to help others, newer families, to help them know that they too will survive as desperately, devastatingly hard as it is. Also, men and women can grieve differently. So Olga strongly suggests trying to find someone of the same gender to help you as well for a different kind of comfort and bonding to get to the specific challenges that you may be facing. You can find someone within your group with a mentor or a separate group entirely. Olga has learned a lot through this awful time and shows great strength and has given wise advice. Tough love thing, it's crap. Tough love is the worst. I tried doing it with my daughter. I wouldn't communicate with her when she was in jail. I wrote her letters and said, look, you've got to look at yourself. You've got to look at yourself. I'm not here to just keep rescuing you. And But, you know, she, and at one point she said to me after, well, when you didn't love me, that's what she called it when I was being, you know, assertive. When you didn't love me, it is the hardest thing I ever heard from her in my life. There are so very many ways to parent. Please just be sure to love your child and always be sure to tell them and show them no matter what is going on in their lives or yours, be sure they truly know it and feel it and embrace it. Bless you for what you do, Kelly. Thank you. Well, thank you. And right, take ha- care. And you too, take care. All right, have a good day. Bye-bye. And you too, bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, 
Or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.